All right. Does Christianity involve contrary or opposing beliefs within its essential components, or even non-essential components? If God is infinitely good and infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and absolutely sovereign, how is it that there is evil in God's creation? Two good questions. Another question. Is it possible that there could be a good reason for the existence of evil? Is it possible that there is a world that is morally superior, a world with evil that is morally superior to a world that has no evil. Is that possible? In other words, is there a really good reason for the existence of evil we see in the world? Notice we're not asking the question, is there evil in the world? We're assuming there's evil in the world. We don't really have to assume there's evil in the world. It is an undeniable fact of human experience. Did you know that the issue of evil in God's creation is one of the biggest differences between the Arminian school and the Calvinism school in Christian theology? In fact, it is this very issue that really brings the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism into much greater focus. That is the subject of today's rant. We are finally going to get around to um, the Arminian, the series on Arminianism that I've been talking about doing for a little while now. <clears throat> so we'll come back to these questions. But today's Reformed Rant is really just an introduction. We're going to cover some basics and some historical background uh, before we jump into uh, the five articles of the Remonstrance um, and go from from there and the goal is really to help you first of all understand what arminianism claims just what is it and we're going to go all the way back to arminius himself start there because once you depart from arminius and his earliest followers uh, arminianism begins to spawn a number of different other views uh, within the Christian religion, let's call it, that <clears throat> are pretty uh, disparate from one another. So uh, we're going to try to focus on those essential components of Arminianism that distinguish it from Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism. All right, <clears throat> let's get to it.
Now, what would really be cool is if someone could connect the dots between that song, Mr. Crowley, and the subject of Arminianism. Um, and it will take a little bit of uh, investigation. But there is a connection uh, between the two. And I'm not implying that uh, Jacobus Arminius or Arminians in general are the equivalent of Mr. Crowley in that song. But there's a connection. There's always a connection between those introductory songs and the subject of the rant. It would be cool if someone can actually make that connection and send me a note uh, explaining to me what, what the connection is. All right, so let's jump into <clears throat> Arminianism and just walk through what I'll call an introduction to this subject. Um, starting with, really, in my mind, the problem of evil and logic, right? Both of these are undeniable experiences, well, undeniable from the standpoint that they just kind of take you by the throat and insist that they're, they're there and there's nothing you can do to make them go away. Evil exists, um, and despite the attempts of many atheist philosophers to try and find a way to deny it, it's still uh, they don't live their lives that way. They, no one lives their no one lives their life. No human lives his or her life uh, as if there's no such thing as evil. No one does that. Uh, the only people you you hear trying to deny evil are professors and atheists and philosophers who are doing it in some sort of a bubble, uh, an academic debate or something of this nature, writing a book about it. But in fact, in reality, when you live your life out, you do live your life uh, as if evil exists and you actually do believe evil exists and you believe it's possible for people to wrong you and to do things to you that are absolutely wrong, no matter what. I don't know of anyone who actually doesn't really truly believe that. I know a lot of people who say who say they don't believe it. There's a difference. So the central issue surrounding the Arminianism, Calvinism debate, in my mind, has to do with the nature of God as he is revealed in, in Scripture. <coughs> now this unavoidably, excuse me, this unavoidably touches on an area of philosophy that we call epistemology. This is a fancy word. Don't panic. Okay, don't panic. This is just a fancy word for how human knowledge works or is possible. How can human beings know things about the world? Right? When you start asking questions about human knowledge, you have entered the area of epistemology. How do we know? What is your theory for how human beings know the truth about reality? Pretty simple, right? Uh, <clears throat> well, it gets extremely com complex, but for purposes of this rant, we want to keep it simple um, because the, the 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 audience for this rant is just the everyday Christian who who's out there trying to live their life to the glory of God, and they want to to do and believe and confess those things that are true for God's glory. That's the audience <clears throat> for this rant. <clears throat> It isn't <clears throat> philosophers. Okay. Now, when when we say this sort of God, this is the sort of God that exists, the most obvious next question is going to be, 
how do you know that that is the kind of God that exists versus this other kind of God that exists or could exist? How do you know? And that's the point. How do you know? Where did you get this knowledge from that this God, this God, as opposed to other kinds of gods, that this is the God that actually exists? Now, a Christian epistemology must be informed by or rest upon or derived from Christian theology. And Christian theology must be the outworking of sound biblical exegesis. In other words, we get our theology from the study of Scripture. Because the Bible, you see, is God revealing things about himself to us. That's what the Scripture is doing. That's one of the things Scripture is doing. And any good thinker must recognize that we must get our theory of human knowledge from our theology. Getting your epistemology from Scripture forces us to start with God. If our knowledge and understanding does not start with God, this is a huge claim, then it cannot start at all. God is the source of all human knowledge. Right? And the, the, the trusted source that we have in our possession for acquiring knowledge about God, ourselves, and reality is the Bible. It's God's revelation. So a Christian would say that human knowledge, in one way, shape, or form, from one degree to another, is revelational in nature. All knowledge is revealed knowledge. It is God revealing the truth to us. He does it through nature, and he does it through Scripture. Natural knowledge, general knowledge, revelation knowledge. In his book Against Calvinism, Roger Olson argues that the Reformed or Calvinist view of God makes God out to be a moral monster. And he is not alone. Most theologians and pastors would agree with him. Most theologians and pastors today, especially in Western society, would agree with Olson's assessment of Calvinism or Reformed theology. And the question is then, as I said earlier, how do you know? How do you know that the God that Calvinism describes is a moral monster as opposed to the God you describe, right? This drives us back to the scriptures. What does God say about himself? It doesn't matter what kind of God we want to believe exists. That's a dangerous concept. I just talked about that yesterday in the podcast that I put out regarding uh, perspectivism that's being uh, embraced by the uh, Southern Baptist Convention and it's one of its star seminaries in Wake Forest, North Carolina, Southeastern. If you take that approach, then indeed you can come up with whatever kind of God you want to believe exists. In Romans 1, Paul 
talks about this very thing as being the cause of the wrath of God being poured out upon mankind and the scourge of same-sex desires and homosexuality that results from that wrath of God that's, that's poured out on us because of our idolatrous thinking. Okay, so added to this view are the views of many philosophers who claim that the problem of evil spells doom for the rationality of the Christian religion, right? Go back to my questions. Does Christianity involve contrary or opposing beliefs within its essential components? Specifically, if God is infinitely good, wise, powerful, absolutely sovereign, how is it the case that such a being would decree a reality that includes the one that we have? You look around you at the evil and the suffering in the world, the oppression, the wickedness of humanity, the violence, the dishonesty, the depraved sexual behavior, the pedophiles, the abortionists, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, on and on and on. And we do this we carry on this way in absolute rebellion against the Creator who created human beings in His image to be like Him. And instead, we are anything but. So, this brings us to this, these questions. The, 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 the existence of evil in the world and how that it seems to be a, an uncontroversial experience of human existence. But so, too, is logic. Both of these experiences kind of grab us by the threat. They're in our face. You can try to deny them, but it seems a fool's game to do so. The overwhelming majority of rational people never attempt anything so ludicrous as to deny the absolute nature of these phenomena of human experience. I've had a handful of atheists try to deny the universal absolute nature of logic, trying to claim that it's a utility. problem for folks like that is that they, they have to employ logic in order to deny that it's universal in nature, absolute. They have, to, they have to try and come up with some sort of a rescuing device or pretend that they can conceive of a world in which the laws of logic do not exist, which is in and of itself absurd. You have to employ logic in order to even try to conceive of such a world. And I don't think it's possible. It is, again, a rescuing device. A rescuing device. And what it is, is man suppressing his knowledge of God. So the ground for the theological issues that give rise to the two schools of theology known as Calvinism and Arminianism is the logical problem that arises when Christians attempt to reconcile the following two essential beliefs of Christianity. One, the God revealed in the Bible is infinitely good, wise, powerful, independent, and sovereign over all of creation. Mm-hmm. 
The second, the second belief is that there is a lack of good or the presence of evil in creation. Christianity affirms both of those very basic things. And Christianity would collapse if either one of these things were proven to be false. You could throw Christianity into the trash bin if either one of these were false. Yet, the philosopher comes along and looks at these and says, these two, under the same system, involve a contradiction. And you can have one in that system or the other, but you cannot have both without reducing that system to irrationalism. That's the objection. The Christian worldview contains a contradiction in its most rudimentary beliefs. An infinitely good an infinitely good God, such as the one described in Christianity, is incompatible with the existence of evil in the world. Okay? Since this is the, since this is the case, no rational human being should embrace the Christian worldview. This is the basic problem of evil. Okay? So supposedly something has to give if Christianity is to survive the test of basic human logic. Now the Arminian and the Calvinist both have to confront this problem because the implications of the existence of evil in the world on the nature of God, the kind of God that we claim exists, the kind of God that we claim Scripture tells us exists, the implications are far-reaching here. This is a big deal. It's a big problem. Arminianism attempts to solve this problem by focusing on a model of free will that it claims preserves the internal consistency of Christian theology. And we're going to walk through how Arminianism thinks that it solves this problem. Because in back of it, that's really what this is. That's what this is all about. Why should I believe in the kind of God you say exists when everything around around me contradicts that claim? Okay. So let me say this before I shift gears. However, if you solve the problem of evil. If you can solve the problem of evil without adopting the model of the will that Arminianism does, then there's no need to go any further in the discussion, logically speaking, anyways. Right? Logically speaking. That is the whole point. Right? Unless someone wants to claim that there's, a, that there's clear exegetical warrant for affirming the Arminian model of human freedom. And that's something that we'll probably get to in time. And the reason that I'm focusing on, just so that you know, the reason I'm focusing on this at this point, on the subject of Arminianism at this point, is because when you look out at all the problems that are facing the evangelical churches today, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, as well as other evangelical churches, it is because of, of, in my mind, some deeply held beliefs that are Arminian, in nature, or extremely consistent with Arminian theology, and and beliefs held by some in the Reformed camp that are an absolute departure from and inconsistent with the Reformed theology that they say they believe in. And I'm going to give some examples of where that inconsistency shows shows up. 
So there, there, there are two areas of concern we have to deal with as we deal with Arminianism. The first is Scripture. What does Scripture teach about the kind of God that exists? And the second is logic, right? Um, so just, you know, the Arminian says we've solved the problem of evil in the world with the free will solution. I'll say the libertarian free will solution. The question is, does that really solve the problem? Because the issue here, again, this is the logical component. Have you uh, solved the logical inconsistency of the basic claims of Christianity with the solution of libertarian free will? And that therefore gets God off the hook as being a moral monster. And if I can show that you have not done that at all, then if that's the reason you're hanging on to Arminianism, you should let it go. Your only other reason for hanging on to it has got to be Scripture. That really should be the primary reason. And we'll take a look at Scripture as well. On the other side of this series of Arminianism, the first thing that we want to do is walk through what Arminianism actually believes. And then... I'll come back and we'll do a critique. So after the introduction, I'll do a rant on each of the five articles of the Remonstrance. And then uh, I'll come back and do a critique of those five articles. So we'll walk through what they teach, what they claim, um, what they're really saying. And then we'll come back and, and ask the question, are they biblical? Because that's really what matters. But then we'll also ask the question, does this, does this solve the logical problem that philosophers claim Christianity is, is faced with? All right. Now, <clears throat> in keeping with Christian charity, I do want to point out that Arminianism was born out of a good desire. It had a very noble purpose, defend the character of God, Right? But we must always, always remember the age-old saying. Right? Arminianism may have had the intent to defend the character of God, but the retort to that is, well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. All right, so let's jump in and talk a, a little bit of a history here, and this is not going to be... Um, an extremely detailed history lesson, but it is going to give you a historical background uh, regarding Arminianism and where, where it came from. So Jacobus Arminius is credited with being the guy who systematized this theological school. He lived from 1560 to 1609. Uh, had a tough childhood uh, as, a, as a, a, a child and then as a young, young man. Uh, his dad died when he was only an infant, and his mother, sister, and two brothers were massacred by Spanish troops while he was away in Marburg pursuing his religious education. Now ask yourself the question, were those Spanish troops uh, professing Christ? It's just a practical question. This is something you need to get get your head out of the sand on and look at church history honestly 
fairly. Don't run from it and don't hide from it, right? I would venture to say the overwhelming majority of these troops thought they were doing God's bidding. They go into Marburg and they massacre this man's family. Mother, sister, and brothers. Isn't our family? In the name of Jesus? Really? Arminius uh, studied at Leiden University and then spent a year studying theology under one Theodore Beza in Geneva. Theodore Beza was Calvin's successor, his protege, close friend and student of John Calvin. Now, Beza did uh, spend more time and gave a, uh, a lot more attention to the subject of predestination than Calvin ever did. So Beza takes Calvin's views that are not as fleshed out as modern Calvinism, and he starts to flesh them out. And so um, he adopts what we call superlapsarianism. I'm not going to get into this, but this is, this is an, uh, an ordering of the decrees that um, quite a few Calvinists and Reformed folks find disturbing, and I am included in that group that finds them disturbing because that view does not logically place the fall prior to God's decree to condemn. Uh, it places God's degree, decree to condemn logically prior to the fall. So this is a this is a logical problem, and it is it, it is a great it, it is great speculation on our part as to how this worked. It's better uh, to probably avoid wandering into this area and trying to uh, line these things up perfectly, put them down on paper, and make sure you've got everything ticking and tacking. That's really more about our sinful desire to control and know everything than it is about our desire to truly know the truth of God revealed in Scripture so that we might please Him. Uh, look, if you want to please God, and this is here we go off the beaten path, if you want to please God, God has given you everything you need to please Him clearly revealed in Scripture. Focus on the things that are clearly revealed in Scripture. And if your heart's desire is to serve God and to worship Him and to love Him. Everything you need to do that is screaming at you in Scripture. Loving your neighbor, serving one another, um, you name it. Living a godly life, shunning evil, pursuing good, uh, giving the gospel to people as God brings them into your life. Uh, being a good employee, an example employee where God has placed you at that station in life, living your life to the glory of God. But to get into some of these highly speculative areas, and, you know, I'm not saying, you know, for most people it's probably better to just, you know, focus on the big things. Some people are wired in such a way that they want to they get into this kind of stuff. Just caution Caution, 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 if you want to get into these things. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I am going to warn you that 
delving into these things can lead to uh, the very opposite effect of what you want to do. You want to please God with all your being. You get into these kinds of things and you start speculating. Before you know it, before you realize what you've done, not only have you arrived at what you think is clearly taught in Scripture regarding the order of the decrees, uh, you start to become dogmatic about it and question the salvation of other people who hold to a different ordering of the decrees. This is what happens. Right? This is our own evil, wicked desire to know things that God has not clearly revealed to us. And in some cases, to know things that God hasn't revealed to us at all. But we insist on knowing them. Right? So over the years, I, I've gotten a little better and I'm working on this, and the Lord is working on me, sanctifying me here. But this is a, a, an area for me where I've had serious problems because of the way my mind works. I want to go into the complex, and I want to, and as a younger man, I wanted to do these things. And, and before you know it, I would be dogmatic, or I would be uh, less than charitable to people, who disagreed with me over some of these things? People who are good pe people, who are people who are washed in the blood. People who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Uh, not realizing that to offend someone who believes in Christ, not with the truth, but with the way you present it to them, by either calling them names or treating them. Uh, rudely because they disagree with you on something is as heinous a sin as some of these errors that we're supposed to be rooting out of the body of Christ. Right? Don't talk to me about social justice if you can't even walk from here to there without being kind to those who disagree with you on non-essential matters of the Christian faith or even those who disagree with you on matters that are more fundamental. You don't have to be nasty to everybody. Uh, no, uh, you know, I'll qualify that and say there are wolves in the flock, and I have no problems at all with using the same kind of language Jesus used to describe them. Paul used, Peter used, Jude used, John used. So there is uh, a balance here that we have to strike. But we have to distinguish between those who are in the camp, those who are in the faith, and they deserve the same kind of treatment Jesus would deserve. You talk to them like you would talk to Jesus. Okay. Let's, get, let's, let's move on from there. So I do want to point out now the next subject here in terms of the historical background. And we're going to, we're going to close with this, this little section. The, the connection between the uh, Armenian controversy uh, with uh, Jacobus Arminius and then that led to the Synod of Dort and uh, the earlier controversy then dust up between Martin Luther and Erasmus of Rotterdam. Uh, Arminians' doubts about predestination and human freedom seem to have begun pretty much at the beginning of his ordination, like right off the bat. Uh, now, to, and to be fair, there, 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 there was always an opposing view within Dutch Protestantism that was more inspired by Dutch 
humanism going back to Erasmus, who is known as the Prince of Humanists. It was Erasmus who locked horns with Luther and his Luther's more Augustinian pessimism regarding uh, the will's bondage to sin. Roman Catholicism always had a much more positive view of the will, much more Pelagian in its uh, view of the nature of, of human beings, and that impacts the nature of God, and eventually we'll show how that show you how that works. Arminius was influenced by the theological writings of the great Dutch Catholic humanist uh, Dick Cornhurt. Cornhurt expressed his Erasmian views in a critique of Arminius's former professor Theodore Beza. Cornhurt had a serious problem with Beza's view on predestination. Right. So in, in 1589, Arminius was asked to write a defense of his former professor's view, but finding himself actually in disagreement with Beza, being repelled by Beza's superlapsarian views of predestination, he wrote nothing. He, he kind of played the politics of it. He, he did nothing. It's, it's funny, right? I mean, this is, this is in the 16th century. So here's Beza, or uh, here's Arminius looking at, at this situation and he's like, ugh. So he does nothing. How many guys do we have running around in the SBC and evangelicalism today who know what's going on in our churches and in the leadership of the SBC and other evangelical organizations, parachurch organizations? And they know. They know that what they're seeing is actually raw sewage being piped into the church by wolves in sheep's clothing. And because it is inconvenient, politically speaking, for them to say something, they say nothing. They bury their head in the sands. So Arminius did, kind of did the same thing here, at least for as long as he could. It didn't last. It didn't last. It also seems clear that Arminius was influenced by um, the views of Roman Catholic theologian Louis de Molina on the issue of human freedom and divine knowledge and sufficient grace. That's Molinism, folks. Middle knowledge. I'm not going to get into the, the, the complexities of it. So it was, it was, just know that it was during this same period of time that our, this all was going on with Arminian, Arminius that Molina and the Jesuits faced off with the Dominicans on the controversy called Concerning the Helps of Divine Grace. And uh, Molina's objection was the very conservative view of the Dominicans on predestination, which took an Augustinian view to the subject. So this commission was aimed at addressing uh, Molina's theory of middle knowledge, which was a device designed to reconcile, reconcile human freedom with predestination. It was almost, almost condemned by the Pope, but instead, because for political expediency, because the Jesuits were key in the Counter-Reformation uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, rather than embarrass them and alienate them, uh, the Pope dissolved the commission and left the controversy 
open and uh, commanded silence, which he didn't get. <laughs> they went on fighting after the fact. Undoubtedly, Arminius uh, came down on the Jesuit side of this controversy, which opposed Augustine and uh, even contorted the theology of Thomas Aquinas as well, which really sent the Dominicans off the, off the cliff. Now, in 1609, Arminius died. All right, he died before he had a chance to take his views to the church in council for approval. He had created, drafted five uh, articles on uh, an affirmation statements, beliefs, uh, that he, he intended to take to the church and uh, have the church correct this extreme view of predestination in his mind, which made God the author of evil, and it was very problematic uh, for him. And this was his goal. This was what he was, he was trying to get God off the hook. God can't be responsible for evil in the world. He can't be charged with uh, moral evil. Uh, and that was the goal. So that was the project. He died. His followers would take up his calls and then take uh, these five articles the uh, Articles of the Remonstrance, uh, which is basically a protest, to the Synod of Dort. They would present them to the Synod uh, of Dort. I'm going to stop there historically. We'll, we'll, uh, in the next podcast, I'll pick up at the, at the Synod of Dort and we'll start working through the uh, Articles one by one. Uh, and we will uh, make sure that... Um, at least I'll try to try to make sure that uh, we're being very fair with what Jacobus Arminius believed, because uh, a lot of people don't realize that Jacobus Arminius was a lot more Calvinistic in his views than uh, the overwhelming majority of Arminians are today. I mean, the Arminians today would uh, would be repulsed by Arminius's views, I think, in most cases. I think most modern Armenians today don't know it, but they're more Pelagian and semi-Pelagian than they are Armenian. But that's another subject for another rant. So note the influence of Erasmus and Roman Catholicism that played a key role in influencing Arminius's views. Funny how we still see Roman Catholicism influencing evangelicalism even to this day in a a surge, a new surge of influence coming from that uh, area uh, seems to be uh, on the rise. Also note the emphasis placed on humanity that came from these sources with Erasmus, Roman Catholicism, and so forth, Cornhurt. And then finally, note the that Renaissance, and we'll come, we'll we'll make some connections as we go along here on this one, that Renaissance philosophy significantly influenced men like Erasmus and Molina. Now, I, or Molina, I don't mean to say, I don't mean to say that there was only one philosophy coming out of the Renaissance. Uh, I, when I say Renaissance philosophy, I'm talking about all the variety of philosophies that were coming out of that period of time okay now so what do I what I hope to do over the next few podcasts is make the connection between Roman Catholicism Renaissance philosophies and Arminianism to show how this accounts for the Arminian understanding of both God's independence and human freedom okay so again the point of contention here is the kind of God that the Christian scriptures 
claims exists. If he is perfectly holy, good, all-powerful, and all-knowing, then how is it that we have to deal with the reality of evil, judgment, and hell? The latter seems to clearly contradict the former. Stay tuned. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Reformed Rant. Um, if you have questions, comments that you'd like to leave, if you're listening to the rant in the uh, Anchor app, you can do that in the app. If not, you can go over to Reformed Reasons, which is where I post the rants. I blog from time to time, but I do not blog nearly as much as I used to. Uh, I do far more ranting uh, than I do writing, uh, just because I find it more convenient for me. It fits my schedule better. Um, and then also, an even better place to go is Reformation Charlotte on Facebook. There are two Facebook groups uh, for Reformation Charlotte. Join them both. Uh, good conversation in uh, Reformation Charlotte. So if you if you have questions, comments, you want a fellowship, you want to be around people with like mind, then that's a that would be a great place for you. Uh, listen, keep the faith, stay in the fight, continue to uh, put uh, the past behind you, forgetting those things which are behind, pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus. Keep the faith until we rant again. Take care. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior.